Well, good morning. Jay and Sarah are out of town today. They are at a conference. They'll be traveling back this week, and so I'd ask that you would pray for them as they travel back. If you would turn to the book of James, we'll be in James chapter 1 this morning. We see it commanded in the Old Testament, and it is echoed in 1 Peter Be holy, for I, the Lord, am holy. This command is first issued to the nation of Israel. It's not where we would expect it to be. We don't find it in the book of Exodus after they are are rescued from Egypt. We don't find it in the book of Deuteronomy, but we find it in the book of Leviticus, a book that for many believers, sadly, is considered unimportant and irrelevant For us today. And we won't get into the distinction of what's clean and what is unclean and and, and why it might be that way, but there's an unmistakable reality that what is considered clean in the book of Leviticus is surrounded by that which is unclean. They're so surrounded by that which is unclean that even the smallest careless act could defile that which is clean. And that it would require a sacrifice to purify it, to set it aside, to make it distinct. It would require sacrifice, blood, to be considered clean. It is in the midst of this context that we get the command, Be holy, for I am holy. The nation of Israel is called out, set apart, and surrounded by pagan nations. And if we walk through the history of Israel, we find often is that which the Lord has set aside is defiled by the things around it. When we get to the New Testament, the command to be holy, to be set apart, to be purified, to be distinct is not changed, but it is given greater clarity. We are set apart not by our nationality, but we are set apart by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we are called as redeemed people, as purified, to be holy in the midst of a world that is not. That we live in the midst of an unclean people. 1 John five nineteen: the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We see that although we have been justified, declared righteous, we live in a world that is unclean. We have an adversary who roams around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour And although we've been given a new nature, and this is important because I find far too often we don't make this distinction well enough. If you are in Christ, you've been given a new nature. Your new nature is not alongside your old nature. Your old nature has been removed and you've been given a new one. We cannot at the same time be fully depraved, enemies of God, and purified in worshiping God. We've been given a new nature that seeks to please and honor Him. That even in our new nature, our desire and attraction to sin is not gone. And it will never be gone until we are perfected in Christ that is glorified. So we are commanded to be holy, to grow in holiness. The life of the believer is marked by a growing in holiness, what Scripture often calls godliness, becoming more like Christ. And this process in Scripture is called sanctification. Sanctification is the doctrine that concerns our daily duty of holiness, and sanctification is the will of God for every believer. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1-3. through 3. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. So as servants of God, as James reminds us in verse 1, we ask, what is it that our Lord wants from us? And Scripture is clear. The will of God in our lives and for our lives is our sanctification, our growing in godliness to be holy, for I am holy. This is the theology that undergirds the book of James. If doctrine does not lead our sanctification, what ultimately always happens is we fall into legalism and we dishonor God. We begin to do the commands of God without the desire to worship and to honor God. We become dependent on our own strength to do the things that God has called us to do rather than doing them in the, in the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, our practice piety, our duty as believers is the product of sound theology, our doctrine. They cannot be divorced from one another without distorting and twisting the word of God. We will either fall into antinomianism, I have been saved by grace alone and I can therefore live however I want to live. That God has no requirements on my life because we don't work and earn our salvation so I can live and sin and do what I want because I have been saved. That's antinomianism. Or we fall into legalism. Doctrine doesn't matter. The why behind what we do doesn't matter as long as I do that which God has commanded. And what we see in Scripture is that every command is coupled with theology. They cannot be separated and so that, with that in mind, if you will do honor to the reading of God's word and stand as we read James 1, starting in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count out all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Let us pray. Holy Father, we come this morning submitting ourselves to your word. 
Father, I pray that if we come in here with our own preconceived notions to place upon the text, that you would dash those upon the rocks of your holy word. Father, that you would open our eyes to the reality of the trials we will face and the purpose in which you have given us in the midst of these trials, that we might be conformed into the image of Christ. It is in Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. This simple statement in verse 2 seems to defy all human logic. Count it all a joy when you meet trials of various kinds. These two things that seem to be at complete odds with one another. Joy and trials. This This text presupposes one truth. That the believer in Christ is not exempt from the trials of this life. We will face sickness. We will face death. We will face stress, the loss of job, the loss of income, the loss of relationships. As all people on earth do. In fact, our trials are not minimized. In scripture we are told that we will have more trials than those who are not in Christ. For not only will we have the normal trials of this life, but we will face persecution for the name of Jesus Christ, our trials will be multiplied. And even though scripture is abundantly clear that the believer will face trials, we find many who seek after and the success of so many false gospels, gospels that promise peace, not in Jesus Christ, but peace in this life. It's not just the prosperity gospels in which this idea soars. We find this everywhere in nominal Christianity. Those who come to Jesus Christ for some kind of personal gain. We come to Jesus Christ for political gain, for commercial gain, for personal gain. Those who come to Christ because it is culturally expected and accepted. Jesus even tells us that the visible church will be made up of both the wheat and the tares. That there there, there will be those who really are truly resting in Christ for salvation. And there will be those in the church who sit in the pews who are members in good standing who have no part in Christ. And as such, our pulpits begin to fill with men who seek to tickle the ears of the tares and even some of the wheat to increase giving. And we're left with a modern Christianity that seems to present faith in a way that seeks comfort and ease in this life as its ultimate goal. That faith becomes all about getting along with your neighbor, being a good citizen, and coasting through this life as its chief end. And when trials come, as they do for everyone, rather than being able to count it all the joy, we are left in despair. We are left without Hope and eyes are open to the falsehoods that have been taught and many people walk away. And so we come to the book of James, to this passage, not seeking to be comfortable, but seeking to know truth. And the truth is we all will face trials. We live in a fallen world. If you don't believe me, go home and turn on the news, whatever station you want to pick, and watch it for 10 minutes and you will know that we live in a fallen world. As such, we experience pain and suffering and loss. We'll be sinned against. 
Husbands will abandon their wives. Wives will abandon their husbands. We'll have medical complications, disease, and pandemics. As part of living in this world, it's clear in Scripture, it's clear in our experience that we will face trials. We will suffer hardships. And this is where the prosperity gospel fails time and time again. Because regardless of how much money you give the heretics, the economies fail. Sickness isn't cured and death ultimately comes. And we will not all face the same trials. Some of us will be called to walk through harder trials than others. Some will lose children. Husbands, as I said, will abandon wives and vice versa. Others will walk through incurable diseases, things that some can't even imagine. We all face trials. Count it all joy. The Greek word James uses for trials is pyrosmos. And this word becomes important because this word has a couple of different meanings. In fact, if you look in verse 13, 14, when we see the word tempted, that's the same root word. If you have a King James Bible this morning, James 1, 2 reads, my brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into divers temptations. Why do they translate it so differently? One seemingly talks about hardship and suffering, and the other sounds like a warning against sin, which is correct, and the answer is both. We unfortunately tend to box Scripture in instead of seeing that James is casting a wide net when he's talking about the trials of this life. James is, in fact, talking about Trials, significant hardships that we face in this life that drive us to our knees, that bring us to lament before God at our loss and suffering. We will, in fact, for some of us, walk through life with medical complications that seemingly no one else is asked to bear. But James is also talking about the common in this passage The moments in life when we're brought to a situation in which we can choose to serve God or serve sin. 1 Corinthians 10.13, the first part of it. No temptation, no pyrosmos has overtaken you except that which is common to man. No situation has come upon you except that which is common. While we all may face different hardships and different trials, there is an aspect of life that is common amongst each of us. We all face similar situations as life in life as believers in which we can fall into sin. In fact, the entire letter of James discusses these various situations, these different pyrosmas, these trials and temptations. Believers faced with situations where they will either respond in faith or they respond in sin. Chapter 2 addresses the sin of partiality. And what had occurred was a wealthy man, or a few wealthy people had come into the congregation. And at this moment, the church can either glorify God for what he has done in bringing this wealthy person through the blood of Jesus Christ and into the body of Christ and then to recognize that we are all equal and united in Christ or they can elevate men based, or they can elevate these men based on the standards of men. And if we were to go through the book of 
James, the, the discourse of faith without works being dead, the taming of the, the tongue, the fight that happens within the body are all warnings of worldliness in all pyrosmos, trials, temptations before the believer in which they will either serve God or serve sin. And so in this statement, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kind, James is casting a wide net and he is talking about both the trials of hardship and suffering and the common everyday trials and temptations that we all encounter to glorify and honor God. And what we see is God is sovereign over both. Trials come through the hands of God. The church for generations has taught, down a, taught a watered-down version of the sovereignty of God that gives God and recognizes God's sovereignty and gives him credit when the good things come but deny his sovereignty when the hard times come, when the trials come. And the reason men have done this is because they somehow believe in their mind that it is their job to make God attractive to other people. That if we declared the truth of God, that if we taught the full counts of God, then people wouldn't like him. To know that God is sovereign even in our trials may make people not like God. And so we've begun to create a version of God that is impotent. That looks at the bad things of life. That wishes he could do something, but he can't. Or at the very least, he won't because he doesn't want to interfere with mankind. But scripture reveals time and time again that trials come through the hand of God. Consider Job, and I thought about narrating it this morning, but I think it is much better if we read it. And so I'm going to turn and read to you Job chapter 1 and part of chapter 2. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. And listen to this next part and we'll see it repeated in chapter 2. Now there was the day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And then I will summarize this next part. We, we see that Job loses 
all of his children, that he loses all of his wealth. He is left poor and destitute. And in verse 20, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken, taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you enticed me against him to destroy him without reason. And Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand. Spare only his life. And we see that Job suffers immensely in his health. And in verse 9, his wife says to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. It's the Lord who brings Satan's attention to Job. The Lord says that Job is upright and blameless, a man who glorifies God in all that he does, regardless of his circumstances. And in his sovereignty, the Lord sets the bounds in which Satan cannot go past in testing Job. Apart from God's permission, Satan is unable to do anything against Job. Trials come through the hands of the Lord. Same situation, same trial, two different purposes are served. Satan disagrees with God, and he believes that Job will curse him and sin against him if if, if God strikes him and takes away his material blessing. And that once Job has suffered enough, he will curse God. And so for Satan, the trial is an opportunity for Job to sin against God. That God's purpose is to, is, is to prove and strengthen Job's faith in him. And show Satan to be exactly who Satan has always been. And that is a liar. And we come to the end of the narrative of Job. And Job remains faithful to God. And it is through this trial, through this suffering, that Job sees God with greater clarity and greater understanding and a deeper love for who God is than he ever had before. And in fact, the question that Job asked throughout the book, why, God does not even answer. He doesn't answer the the, the question why, but he answers with who he is. God, why am I going through this suffering? Look at me. All trials pass through the hands of God. God is sovereign in the good, and God is sovereign in the trials. And some will ultimately come to the sovereignty of God and the working of God in the trials of men and ask if God is sovereign and if he allows trials, then God must ultimately be the cause 
of sin. If God had not allowed this trial to come into my life, I would not have sinned against God. This isn't a new argument because James addresses this argument in verses 13 through 14. He leaves no room for confusion. Let no one say when he is tempted, Pyrosmos, that I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. While God allows outward trials, outward pyrosmos to come upon us, to sanctify us, our inward temptation is our own carnal desires. We take the things that God has allowed And we twist and we distort those. One of the things James immediately addresses that we see so common in our society is money. Money in and of itself, wealth in and of itself is never considered to be an evil thing in Scripture. In fact, God is the giver of all our finances. There's nothing bad about having money. There's nothing bad about having a lot of money. Job had immense wealth. Yet when we begin to desire money more than we begin to desire God. Yet when we begin to desire money that God has not given us. When we begin to blame others for not having what we desire. We become envious and greedy. And we begin to elevate others above those who do not have. You see it is our inward temptation that brings us to sin. It is not what God has allowed to come into our lives. So we can never come to God having taken what he, we, we can never come to God having taken what He has given us, having twisted it and distorted it, and then say it's your fault. Had Job cursed God, it would not have been God's fault that Job sinned. Though Job lost his children, though Job lost his finances, though Job suffered in his health, it would have been Job's own corrupt desire. To serve sin that leads him to sin. It would not, the blame would not be placed at God's feet. And so we must understand that, that, that while God allows and brings, while God allows trials to come to us as opportunities to praise him, it is our own corrupt desire to serve sin that leads us to sin. And then we get to the question of why. Why does God allow these trials? If God is love and God loved me, why would God allow trials to come into my life? God allows these trials, pyrosmos, because they are a means by which we are conformed into the image of Christ. A means for our sanctification. Verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Testing our faith produces steadfastness. Our steadfast resolve to trust in the Lord in the good times and the hard times, to rely completely on God. And some have come to this passage and and, and used it to teach a type of perfectionism who have used this passage to say that we can fully eradicate sin in this life. And what ultimately comes from this kind of teaching is a theology that says that we can have Jesus Christ 
as our Savior, and then later down in our lives we can make Jesus Christ our Lord. And let me be clear this morning that Jesus Christ is not your Savior if He is not your Lord. And Jesus Christ is not your Lord if He is not your Savior. Jesus saves us and redeems us from being servants of sin so that we are servants of God. The way in which we read this passage must be, must be done in the light of the full counsel of God. And what we know is that Scripture teaches us that we are to work out our salvation. Not work for, work out our salvation. And in our faith is to be consistently and constantly seeking Christ that sin might abound less. As we mature in faith, the desire to sin, though never eradicated, ought to lessen for the believer. And so James is telling us that the purpose behind our trials, our testing, is that we might be sanctified. We might be more like Christ. Why does God allow us to go through what we go through? So we might be more like his son. This is echoed in 1 Peter 1, 6-7. We read it this morning. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, pyrosma, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials come to prove the genuineness of our faith, that we might trust and rely in Christ more. The trials we face are the furnace by which God melts us and molds us into the image of Christ. Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mountain, chapter in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Not all trials are persecution, but all persecution is a trial. And we are to rejoice because it is through the furnace of the trials that we are ushered into the kingdom of heaven. James 1.12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast in a trial. Why? For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. In trials, God reveals to us what is most valuable. That's himself. And those trials are an opportunity to glorify God for who he is. So often we hear about how good God is when our prayers are answered the way in which we want them and think they ought to be answered. Or when we get a promotion or a loved one is healed from a sickness, we we declare as we ought to, God is good. And we say God is good when? Oh, come on. God is good? All the time. I know, I didn't set y'all up well for that one. God is good all the time. How little is this our heart when we're in the valley? When we're going through the midst of trials, how often do we declare God is good all the time? Yet it's what the psalmist in Psalm 23 notes. The Lord is my shepherd. 
I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It is in the valley that the psalmist trusts and knows that God is near, and that he is walking through the valley for the righteousness of God's name, and that a table is prepared for him in the presence of his enemies for the glory of God, God draws near in the valley in the trial, molding and shaping us. He, he comforts us and, and he disciplines us and he reproves us and he reveals himself to us in the trials. Trials are an opportunity to mortify the sins of the flesh. And not in every trial do we glorify God. Not in every trial do we remain steadfast. For we still desire sin. And often we fall into sin seeking to serve ourselves. In the valley and in the common course of life, we do not remain steadfast. We serve our old master. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In our sin, God brings his children through discipline to a point of confession and repentance Revealing to us that he is holy and we have sinned against a holy God. God does not abandon his children when they sin against him. He disciplines them. He calls them back and we are called to confess and repent. And this discipline and repentance is part of the molding process. It's part of the fires God uses to mold us into the image of Christ. As we consider the gospel... As we consider what Jesus Christ did on the cross, that his precious blood was spilled, our sin is shown for what it is, a blasphemy against the holy God. And we are brought to our knees to confess and to repent. When we fail to see our sin, when we refuse to repent, when we trust in our own righteousness, we refuse to be molded into the image of Christ. Thomas Watson, in in his doctrine on repentance, writes soberly. There are persons who will find it harder to repent than others. Those who have sat a great while under the ministry of God's ordinances, but grow no better. The earth which drinks in the rain, but it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. Hebrews 6, 8. There is little hope of the metal which has lain long in the fire, but is not melted and refined. When God has sent his ministers one after another, exhorting and persuading men to leave their sins, but they settle upon the dregs of formality, that is legalism, and can sit and sleep under a sermon, it will be hard for these ever to be brought to repentance. They may fear lest Christ should say to them, as once he said to the fig tree, may no fruit ever come to you again, Matthew 21, verse 19. If we've never been brought to a point repentance for the sin against a holy God. If we never see God's hand molding and conforming us into the image of 
Christ through various pyrosmas, through various trials, we can have no confidence in our salvation. And I love you enough to say, I don't care how many prayers you prayed, if you have not been conformed into the image of Christ, if you are not growing in holiness, you should fear for your salvation. Because God's will is for the sanctification of his people. God will mold his people. Christ will cleanse his bride with the washing of the water of the word. And so if all we're hoping for is resting in a prayer, resting and walking down and and, and praying a prayer, and there's no fruit of repentance in our life, there's no fruit of the Spirit in our life, there's no working working out of the salvation in our life, we cannot have confidence in our salvation. And this is why theology is so vital. We are bought with a price. Our redemption is not free. It is free to us, but it costs the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So often we consider Christ's physical suffering on the cross, but do we consider the imputed sins that he suffers the wrath of God for? And because we have been bought with such a great price, we no longer live for ourselves But we live for God, servants of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And as servants, we know what our master, our Lord, desires for us. We know what his purpose for us is, and that is our holiness or our godliness, to be more like Christ. So when we fall into various trials, when we meet Various trials, we no longer see them through the window of the flesh, but we look at them through the window of sanctification. Theology is what takes this seemingly illogical command, joy and trials, and turns it into a glorious one. Count it all joy. We do so because we know that God is allowing this trial into our lives to conform us into the image of Christ. And that through this trials, we remain steadfast in our faith. We grow in our love for God. That if we submit ourselves to him, trust in him, rely on him, he shapes and molds us in holiness. And when we strip away the theology and we strip away the doctrine, we're left with fake smiles and pretending to be happy because we know that the Bible says we're to count all joy. And so the only thing I'm left to do when I'm walking through the valley is say, I'm fine. It's okay. It's not that bad. We preach a prosperity and comfort because it's where our joy is, this life. And this is the outworking of taking theology and saying it doesn't matter. It's no wonder so many people leave the church because the church doesn't have a message anymore. The message that's been preached for so long is designed to stir emotions, to find happiness in ourselves, yet the hearer is left destitute in the trials. If the whole purpose of my faith is to be happy, if the whole purpose of my faith is to be comfortable, then when trials come, what am I left with? Instead of preaching the whole counsel of God that the bride of Christ has been bought with a price and therefore no longer lives for themselves but submit wholly to God knowing that he does good in all that he does whether he 
He works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, even the valleys we traverse in this life. This is the message of the church. That even in the valleys of life, in the various trials we are called to face, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God is good all the time. Count it all joy. Count it all joy doesn't minimize the suffering, but seeks to rest in the comforter, the giver of true eternal joy. Nothing in the narrative of Job even hints at a laugh, that he thinks it's funny, that it's a lighthearted thing because he's trusting and resting in the Lord. When Job's friends come, Job doesn't say, it's not a big deal and tries to act like everything is normal. No, Job is suffering. He suffered deeply the loss of his family, the loss of his health, the loss of his wealth, which is ironically the three things the prosperity gospel preaches Yet in the midst of the suffering, he did not curse God. And though he didn't understand why, he discovered and learned even more that God is sovereign and just in all that he does. That although he asked the Lord, I do not know where you are, he began to understand through the trial that the Lord has never left him and never forsaken him. It is in the trial and the pyrosmos that we see how empty and fragile we are. And we might know that the Lord is our stronghold. And we might know that the Lord is our refuge because it is what Scripture teaches. But it's when we go through the trial that we begin to see intimately in a way that maybe we have never seen before that the Lord is our refuge. That the Lord is our rock. That He is our stronghold. If the Lord doesn't abandon us in the trials, He gives us what we need. Often we hear a phrase, or I hear a phrase, uh, the Lord will not allow you to go through more than what you can handle. False. That is false. God allows us to be trained past the point that we can handle so that we might be filled with Christ. In chapter, in verse 5, if any of you, if any of you lacks wisdom, wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. And we don't have time to walk through the doctrine of wisdom this morning, but suffice it to say that wisdom is knowing God's will, desiring to do God's will, and applying God's will to our lives. So the doctrine of sanctification is knowing God more through his word and living our lives in light of God's word and desiring to do the will of our Father. When the trials of life come, we come before the Father who gives all wisdom. We come before the one who, who reveals to us the truth in his word. He gives us wisdom through his word to walk through the furnace being shaped in holiness. It is the joy of the believer to have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of him. Revealing and teaching all truth, the truth that is in God's word. And so trials bring us to the truth of Scripture. That if we want to know how to remain steadfast, if we want to know how to glorify God in every situation, we come to Scripture. For it is in Scripture that God reveals Himself to us. 
1 Corinthians 10.13, the full verse says, No temptation has overtaken you that is, not, um, that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure. God gives us wisdom through his word that we might remain steadfast. If we are to stand in the face of pyrosmos of trials and temptations and glorify God and not serve sin but serve God, we do so through his word. He sanctifies us through his word. Once we begin to set this aside and apply our reason and our thoughts and our philosophies to the things that we are going through, we begin to dishonor God. We will see quickly that we do not remain steadfast. We may come up with catchy sayings that we can put on our cars or on our refrigerator or paint on a sign and hang on our walls in our house. But we are not conformed into the image of Christ apart from the Holy Spirit revealing to us who God is in his word. We can count it all the joy, my brothers, when we meet trials of various kinds because we are not abandoned in the trial, but we are provided with all that we need to, stay, to, to, to be steadfast in our faith. We are provided with all we need to rest in God, to glorify God, and to trust in God. And he does this through his word. And for those in here that are not in Christ, I can't give you a false hope. There is no joy in the trial Because true joy is only found in God. And apart from redemption and the blood of Christ and through the blood of Christ, there is no peace, there is no joy, there is no holiness. If you've lain long in the furnace and you have not been melted and molded into the image of Christ, Scripture declares, repent and trust in Christ. You may have sat in the pews for for decades You may be a member in good standing and the word of God has fallen on your cold heart for decades. There's yet hope in Christ for God alone removes the heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. Repent and trust in Christ. And for the bride of Christ this morning, count it all the joy when you meet trials of various kinds, knowing that in the trial God is molding us into the image of Christ. That he is growing us in holiness. Let's not immediately erase the sorrow. But we know that not one tear is wasted. For scripture tells us that God bottles our tears. Psalm 56 verse 8. For even though Paul lived his life with a thorn in the flesh. It served as a reminder of his frailty and the glory of God. And may it be so in our lives as we walk through various trials. May our lives ring forth this saying, to the glory of God alone, count it all joy. If you'll pray with me. Dear Lord, we come before you acknowledging that you are sovereign. That you are sovereign both over the good and the trials. Father, that we can come to you in prayer asking for wisdom because you have the power that you are not impotent but you are omnipotent father may we see our trials as opportunities 
to glorify and honor you. Father, we can only do this in the strength of Jesus Christ. Father, that if we come to this in our own frailty and we come to this in our own human understanding, we understand that this doesn't make sense to count it all joy in our suffering. Father, I pray that, that you would continue to reveal for us that even in our suffering, you work all things to the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Father, I pray for those who, who may be in here this morning who have sat long under your word and who have remained hard and cold to you. Father, I pray this morning that you will do only that, that you will do that which only you can do, and that is to remove the heart of stone and to give a heart of flesh. Father, that you will call men and women in this room to repentance and faith in Christ. Father, for those who are in Christ, I pray that we find comfort and truth of your word.